All right, dude, I don't want to hustle anything about this and, and what you may have to say about this movie or not say about this movie, but we do need to move this along. There is a new Taylor Swift record that drops at midnight. I, if we go to midnight, <laughs> I will. You are completely <laughs> capable of that. <laughs> you know I 100% it. am. Yeah, no, right. that's that's actually a very good point. Yeah, so, you know. New Swift at midnight. That that's the that was the highlight. I mean, I was gonna say that was the highlight of my day, but then I got a whole bunch of Marvel news, and now I'm podcasting. So really, it's it's been a it's been a pretty good day. I gotta be honest. Yeah, you're you're having a banner day. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't take much. Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada. You are listening to episode 249 of the Matinee Cast. It's the movie loving podcast of my movie loving website, thematinee.ca. Your home for cinematic passion and perspective. I'm really happy y'all have decided to tune in today since it's the time of year where we would normally be getting together, raising glasses, exchanging gifts and the like. This year, of course, we can't. So every little morsel counts. Letting me talk to you about film today makes me feel welcome in your home and knowing you're listening to me leaves me as satisfied as I would be seeing you smile when you open a thoughtful card I scribbled out for you. We take what we can during the 2020 holiday season and we call it a win. Speaking of a win, something I'm chalking up into the W column for 2020 is that I'm bringing back today's guest for the second time in 12 months, for the second year in a row. After a long absence, I've managed to get him onto my little dog and pony show two times a year for the second year running, and that is not nothing, my friend. He is the head cheese over at the Film Stage Podcast. We are across a wire down to DC. Brian J. Rowan is here. How are you doing, man? What is up? I am doing fine. <laughs> That's fantastic, man. I, I, I really do hope for good things. Like we were saying off air, like what kind of a dumpster fire things have turned into in the world. And I really hope that somebody comes along with a fire extinguisher real soon. So like, it's, it's funny. Cause you were like, you know, you hope that someone's having a good day. And like, I have had actually like kind of a splendid year despite See? the pandemic. See? See? Like it's it's I got like a new job that pays better and like, you know, a bunch of personal stuff. Panda. I refinanced my mortgage, so I'm paying less on that. Like things are going pretty good considering the incredible death toll and the, the yes. you know, rocking changes to the industry that I yeah. tie yes. part of my life to. On episode 249, <laughs> we will be discussing Mank. We'll be flipping the record over to play the other side. But first, we need to learn more about Brian. This is Know Your Enemy. Ryan first showed up on episode 63, where we talked about The Dark Knight Rises. We learned the first film he saw in a theater was Jurassic Park. The last film he'd seen at the time was Win Win. The worst film he's ever seen is Remember Me. His unseen classic or essential is Fritz Lang's Metropolis. The last but not least, the movie he wished he made is The Tree of Life. Ryan returned on episode 81, where we talked about the incredible Burt Wonderstone, which I swear to God, I had every intention of enjoying. <laughs> we learned the movie that everybody else hates, but he digs is Battle Los Angeles. The film he likes, but most people do not, is Cloud Atlas. The last movie to make him cry was Les Miserables. In a movie of his life, he'd be played by Michael Fassbender, and the movie he was watching next was Rust and Bone. Then Brian took a long little absence, but returned in episode 217 
where we talked about High Flying Bird. We learned in the film that made his love of cinema turn a corner was a tie between The Thin Red Line and The Fountain. His first date movies, plural, were Mission Impossible 2 and Closer. His sick day movie is Shame. The last movie to leave him speechless was Mother, directed by Darren Aronofsky. And his epitaph would be from Unforgiven, Deserves, got nothing to do with it finally around this time last year on episode 236 we talked about knives out we learned the film he really digs but never wants to see again is inland empire the film that genuinely freaks him out is the descent the movie that always makes him laugh is the 21 jump street joint with uh, channing tatum and jonah hill his favorite movie soundtrack is train spotting and a movie he loves but nobody has heard of is the page turner so it's time for round five you are a five timer yeah. mr rowan it's only taken me eight years um <laughs> when you you know, there was apparently a of i tried to do the math in my head like 120 episode uh yeah, yeah, from 81 to 217. So that that is entirely my bad. I have no idea what happened in that time. It's not like we had a falling out. Or, you know, it's not like you wouldn't return my call. It's just, I, I started like spinning the roster in a different way for reasons unbeknownst to me. Um, and I'm sure in that time, I got some episodes I didn't like. Uh, time for round five. Mr. Rowan, when you go to a theater, when you can go to a theater, where do you like to sit? So th- this is a two-part answer because um, in a big, how is this possibly a two-part answer? Because there's there's a difference in a big cineplex, right, with like right. 250 seats or whatever. Right, it's dead center, about three quarters back. Now okay. in like an indie theater, you know, where there might be like only 60 seats. Sure, it's dead center, about two thirds back. <laughs> Wait, so that's that's the two parts. <laughs> In, in, in a big theater, it's dead center, two, thir- two thirds back. No, three fourths back. Oh, I, okay. I see. So if it's a bigger a, house, a if it's a bigger theater. house, you're going further back. Correct. Yes. Okay. Why? Um, I like to, I like to, I don't want the screen to entirely envelop my vision. Right. So like, I don't want to be really? in the first rows. No, no, I understand that. Right. But you want to be so, back. Like you actually want to be back further that you can see edge of frame yes absolutely why like it's i'm oh, sorry I, I, that, that comes out wrong i don't mean to like it's not like you're a weirdo why <laughs> but, but why why so i'm because i'm sure there's a reason yeah i just you know i've gone to a lot of movies i've i've done my my research um sure i, I had a friend who always was way back of the house yeah at that point there's like too many people in front of you and you feel too far away i feel like you know the three-fourths or you know in a smaller theater two-third back it's like the perfect mix of having the like physical present mental knowledge of being among a lot of other people without being so far removed that it becomes a distraction and you're not so close that you're like hurting or worried you're missing something at the edge of the frame. Like if you think about your vision, you have like 175 degrees, right? But like 15 right. degrees on either side are kind of dead space. Yeah. So you fill that dead space with like the curtains or the walls or whatever. Sure. And then, you know, the, the pure dead center of your vision where you're all okay. Okay. Uh, Oh, so we're getting into physics here. Okay. I get you. Okay. (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, like I've over the course of my life, I've sat all over the place. So there was certainly a while there where I was sitting either very, very back or towards the back. And 
I mean, like the only thing I think about that nowadays is you are really opening up the window for distraction. For a press screening of Seven Psychopaths, I sat with my friend Dan Gavazdin, and we were like second row all the way to the left. And the guy next to him made an outgoing phone call. (laughs) It's not even like he picked up the phone. He, at some point, took out his phone, dialed a number, and began talking. (laughs) So, like, no matter where you go, Uh, there there was only three people that I could have seen, and he was the bad one. And, like, (laughs) if I'd been further back, I might not even have been aware that he was doing that. Everybody could be turning in their phones on the way in and somebody somewhere will have smuggled one and you're, you're screwed. Okay. So, okay. Getting back for, to, to fill 175 with 180 degrees. All right. I go, okay. Yeah. yeah I, I get it. And as I said, once in a while I have done that. So I, I do understand it. Um, moving along. If you could go on a date with any movie character, who would you choose? So this was tough. Um, because, you know, like if you'd asked me this when I was a teenager, you'd probably get a very different answer than now. Sure. Um, I am a single father. So if I'm going to date someone, you know, assume if I'm going on a date, my desire is that it will turn into more dates and possibly a relationship. So then I have to be like, is this person a good possible, like, I won't say stepmother, but like, you know, influence or human being to have around my daughter? Yeah, yeah. There, there's and like so, criteria that they got to start meeting. This is this is very much the difference between dating in your younger years and dating as a grown up. Right. If this question had come, you know, while we were talking about the incredible Burt Wonderstone. <laughs> yeah. It would have been a very different answer. answer. Yeah. That's why I'm glad I have um, you now. Please continue. Yes. So <clears throat> I came up with two answers. And okay. of course you did. I, did, I just, I had such trouble. So, and one of them was a cartoon and I didn't know if that was allowed. <laughs> it's totally allowed. Okay, great. So I'll start with the cartoon. It's Rapunzel from Tangled. <laughs> okay. Why? She, she's just like, I love the movie Tangled. It's, it's, it's such a great movie. She's got a pet lizard. I've got a pet lizard. She's really good with children. We see when they're in the, uh, the like courtyard and they're braiding her hair. And she's just like such a vivacious, curious, like loving, adventurous person that I'm like, not only does she seem like she'd be super fun, but she also seems like she'd be great, you know, with my daughter. So that's awesome. Um, My other answer was Elle Woods from Legally Blonde. She's like, first of all, she's gorgeous. So that helps. She got into Harvard and she's a lawyer and she obviously cares about people. Like she spends a lot of time helping that woman at the, uh, the beauty salon with her stuff and right. she like knows her worth. She's got a lot of self-confidence, but she's not like wrapped up in herself to the point that she's conceited. I feel like she strikes a good balance of like whatever might be termed like classical femininity, but also like great and healthy ambition. Sure. And so I feel like she'd be like, again, not only someone that would be nice to spend time with and who would be intellectually challenging but also just like so far out of my usual sphere that she might like make me open up in ways that i wouldn't expect but also like again you know probably a a great role model for my child so (laughs) see what i like like what i like here is that in both cases you're uh, you know you're being drawn to character you're being you're like you're going beyond the they just seem so cute and so fun like you're actually being drawn to you know strength of personality Right. Like I chose Rapunzel. I didn't choose like Anna from Frozen or like Ariel from The Little Mermaid because like, you know, I just don't think that they they're they're a good match for me. 
No, no, my daughter. They're they're a little bit too. Um, they're they're hanging back a little bit too much. You know, Rapunzel in Entangled anyway. Rapunzel does a little bit more badass. Like that's oh, yeah. that's actually kind of what I like about Tangled is they take what is again a classic damsel in distress and find a way to to turn her into like you know a feisty fighter. Uh, Mr. Rowan, what is the dirtiest film you have ever seen? I had two answers for this, but they're really I I have to just stick with the one. It's sweet movie. Sweet movie. It's called no. Sweet Movie. Okay, tell it's, me about this opus. It's it's a movie that I saw in my Cinema of Liberation class, and it is it's from college. I only saw it once. It's it's from the director like uh, Dusan Magaveev. Yeah. Okay. And it's like this crazy big parable about like communism and stuff and it's just it's just gross it's so it opens with like a a person winning a virginity contest and yeah getting to to like marry a tycoon of some sort and then like at some point they just whip out like a, a a human genitalia like an actual male member that has been painted gold and then i believe she gets urinated on and that is like if my memory serves the the first 15 minutes my god and then i'm pretty sure there's a giant like coprophagic feast that happens um this movie is i won't say seared into my memory because i can't remember it beat for beat but i remember sitting in this class full of people who took this class thinking like it's a class about movies this will be great and i think that this was the professor's way of like weeding people out just that'll do it this is what we're this is what we're looking at kids (laughs) And I, I took like three classes from that guy. That guy ruled. <laughs> but um, he had one class that was legitimately called Sexuality in Cinema. Yep. But like weirdly, none of those movies felt as dirty as Sweet Movie. So a couple things. First of all, as you've been talking, I have decided to drop Sweet Movie into Google Image. Oh, no. And my God. Um, I, I'm I get like, it. Yo, I get it. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm like, one of the things I passed was one of the things you talked about in the opening 15 minutes. Is there any redeeming virtue to this movie? Or is this guy just looking to see what he could get away with putting on film? He's a weird guy. Um, okay. I, I, I know that my Cinema of Liberation teacher, a man whose name I forget, but who I respect the heck out of, like made good points for it. Um, and in another class, he showed uh, W.R. Mysteries of the Organism from the same director. Yep. Um, which was uh, like partially about uh, Wilhelm Reich, who believed that like there was something called organ energy that did stuff. So like this is clearly one of those directors who had ideas and wasn't just trying to put stuff on screen to weird people out. Yeah, I mean, the the, the what I always kind of scratch my head about when I see filmmakers who come up with ideas like this and manage to actually pull them off is I mm-hmm. think to myself, somebody gave you money to do this. Like, don't get me wrong. I don't, I don't blame you for the concept. I don't blame you for actually being able to do it. I'm convinced. I, like I'm amazed that they were loquacious enough to get somebody else to buy, literally buy into it. Oh yeah. I don't, I don't you know, know how this, movie I don't know how that happened either. Brian, what is your favorite black and white film? Uh, first of all, I hate you for answer or for asking this question at all. Um, <laughs> I have. Listen, man, like, I get to round five and I got to start getting real creative with these. And you got to remind yourself, I'm already up to like round six or seven with these. So it's starting to get real, you know, real tough to come up with new questions. 
that is a very good point. Um, um, so yeah, so this is hard because it's like, it's like, you know, what's your favorite movie that was filmed in color? It's just, it's not really like a genre. So I had to like skim through like every film noir, every like classic golden age Hollywood thing. And, um, I finally decided to go with King Kong. Oh, very cool. Okay. The 1933 Cooper. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, why that one? I think that's like one of the first movies that I really like claimed as my own. I, I think my um my grandparents or my parents like taped it off of television. And I just watched the hell out of it because there's dinosaurs and there's a giant, you know, ape. And right. there's, you know, a beautiful woman screaming. And it was it was one it was one of the first movies that made me say like, oh, my God, how did they do that? Right. Because like right. I'd seen Top Gun and I'd seen Indiana Jones and like. You know, as a kid, it's just like, well, there's human beings there. And I just assume that Harrison Ford really jumped off of that horse onto that Nazi truck. Um, but this one, I'm like, you know, clearly these things don't exist. One of the first thing you learn about dinosaurs is that they're all gone. So I was like, how does this work? Like, how did they even do this? And so it um it became like a, a big, even like so young, just a big turning point in my understanding of like what film actually was. It's one of those movies that every once in a while, and I think actually it is a question that comes up in like, I think we're around seven or so is if no, if somebody had never seen a film, what's one of the first ones you'd show them. Mm-hmm. Um, and like usually I, I mean the most typical answer I hear for that is either star Wars or the wizard of Oz. But I think King Kong would be an incredible answer for that because you are taking something completely illogical and unreal and manifesting it in a way that makes the person believe it. Also, it's just, it's such an early movie. And I like when, when they came out with the tin box, like set for it yeah, yeah, on it's yeah. whatever anniversary, like I got it for Christmas and I, I didn't even watch the movie. The first thing I did was start burning through the special features. Yeah, me too. Because I was I like, and you know, seeing the way that like they would have like three, different like mini screens within one of their like stop motion sets yeah and they had to like use condoms to make yeah. those screens yeah yeah, yeah. and just all the things and like they'd advance the film like one frame at a time and then it was just like it's crazy to think that like when you're you're not that far out from just like train pulling into a station yeah. these people are like okay we can do all of this craziness and it's it's gonna work and it's gonna yeah. look amazing and it did and i lo- i still love the fact that they were like looking at the dailies or whatever and said like, God, you can see our fingers like in his fur, like his fur is rippling because we, for some reason chose a giant hairy animal and it's the people are going to hate this. And like, then they said, but people saw it and were like, Oh my God, it's crazy that you can see the wind rippling his fur. <laughs> and it's just like, that yeah, man, that's the magic of the movies. It has been far too long since I've watched the original King Kong. Um, I, I love that movie. I, I like the Peter Jackson version too. Uh, you know, I, I like your approach. Yeah, I can. You've shown your work. I, I approve. Well, nicely done. See, it's not that hard. Uh, but I mean, speaking of Brian J. Rowan, what is a film nobody would expect you to like, but you do? I guess the thing that I've always gotten the most kind of like, whoa, you really like that? Like, but even like this is like back in high school was West Side Story. Okay. But like the feels like I've just loved it for so long that it feels kind of common now. But I think like, you know, to look at me and to know my past and everything, people wouldn't expect me to like a Romeo and Juliet like musical with a lot of dancing. <laughs> but I I firmly love West Side Story and I'm legitimately terrified at the concept of them remaking it. So, 
Well, okay, so let, let's let's unpack this a little bit. Uh, what is it about West Side Story that you really, really love? Just like all of it, man. Like it's it's such um, it's a musical that doesn't hide even in the non-musical sections. Okay, the fact that it's a musical, like the dancing for the fighting that they do. It's like like when I watched this movie in like middle school. Because this is one of those movies that, like, if, if your music teacher's sick, you know, it's just like, put on the West Side Story. Who cares? Right. Um, and, and people would, like, laugh because these these guys are in, like, you know, tight pants and they're pirouetting and doing high jumps. Yeah. And it's supposed they're, to, like, symbolize the fight. Arabesque. Yeah. But it's <laughs> awesome. Like, these guys are, like, they're, this is, like, some real athletic stuff going on. And I love that it's not trying to hide it's it's musicality even in the points where like like if, if someone else had made this or like if, if you want to think of like a worst case scenario of how this movie would be made it would be like you'd get a martin scorsese style street fight and then it would go yeah, into yeah. like a kind of fantasy of them singing but like no this 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 feels weirdly organic like every single time they burst into song it feels like that is the way that these wayward street youths <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> to they sound will. like an eighty-year-old. Have like you, you believe that they would actually that you you believe that they would actually walk along and snap? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like, yeah. and okay. and the best part is, it makes you want to walk along and snap. <laughs> this is true. Um, yeah, I, I got to be honest. Like, I mean, I believe that that is one of like the greatest movies ever made. It's uh, it just mm-hmm. you know, like whether wherever it ranks in my own personal numbers aside, that's just an absolutely incredible piece of filmmaking, but it's not something I would necessarily readily associate with you. So well, well answered. There we go. That's a lot about Brian. Uh, it will not take me as many years to get him back on. Although I don't know if I'm going to get him back on twice in 2021, but I don't know what 2021 is going to be. So for all I know, he could be on three times. Uh, we'll learn a lot more about him and he'll hate me for the questions I ask. But now we have a movie to talk about. We are going to talk about a new film on Netflix. Come on back right after this going to talk about make Mank is directed by David Fincher. It's written by Jack Fincher. It stars Gary Oldman, Amanda Seyfried, Lily Collins, Charles Dance, Tuppence Middleton, Arliss Howard, and Tom Burke. Mank is about the studio system era screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz. It's Gary Oldman. Incapacitated after an auto accident, Mank begins the film holding up in a Victoriaville cottage, writing a new screenplay for a project with Orson Welles. The film then moves back and forth in time. In the past, we witnessed Mank at the tail end of his prime, moving about the MGM set with a quarterback's confidence, making foolish bets, and drifting through the orbits of titans like Irving Thalberg and Louis B. Mayer. We then watch as they all deal with the crippling effects of the Great Depression and try to sway an election. We also watch as they all huddle around the warmth of media mogul William Randolph Hearst and his young lover Marion Davies. In the present... We watch Mank plug away at his screenplay, struggling to do so while remaining sober, wondering how he found himself so far out of Hollywood's loop, and fending off urges not to write a story so blatantly about Hearst and Davies. 
Late in Mink, we are told the parable of the organ grinder's monkey. The organ grinder's monkey is tiny in stature, and after being taken from the wild, he is naturally overwhelmed by the enormous world around him. But every day, a sweet elderly woman dresses him in a fine suit of clothes. She fits him with a velvet vest lined with pearl buttons and a handsome red fez with a silk tassel. He's paired with a fine gilded music box with an exquisite gold chain fastened to his neck and his neck alone. Whenever he ventures into the city to perform, he thinks, what a powerful fellow I must be. Look how patiently everyone waits just to watch me dance. And wherever I go, he thinks, this music box must follow and with it this poor downtrodden man and if i choose not to dance this sorry street peddler will starve but every time i do decide to dance every time he must play whether he wishes to or not pop quiz hot shot when it comes to mank who is the organ grinder and who is the monkey uh fincher is the organ grinder and we are all but monkeys <laughs> okay how do you figure <laughs> I just like it's it's I feel like if anyone else had made this movie, the entirety of film Twitter and and like mankind in general just would have been like, oh, OK, sure. Right. Yeah, like, I guess so. Like, all right, whatever. It's another thing hitting Netflix and maybe it would pop up in like the top three, you know, Netflix streaming things. And people would look at it and say, like, oh, yeah, it's about it's about this thing with Citizen Kane and whatever. But David Fincher, he he dresses it up in a little pearl button suit and everyone's just like, oh, look at the mank. Look at the mank dancing for us. Like, we got to talk about the mank. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like him alone. It just because we're getting another Fincher, everyone's just like, oh, my God, that's this is it. Like, we're you know, we got to we got to dance for our supper. We got to be super excited about this. Right, right. I see. Like, I, I would go a little one a little higher. I think the studios are the organ grinder and we are all the monkey. Like we are thinking to ourselves that we are, you know, we, we hold the power to make or break some of these movies. Like if we sit them out, they'll somehow tank, you know, they'll just go away and we will not get another one of these. If we hold out long enough and we protest, you know, we will not get another fill in the blank, whatever happens to be another musical, another Harry Potter movie and another comic book movie, whatever. But in the, in the meantime, we're actually just so starved for content that the second this music box starts up, we start to dance. When I asked you to do this show before either one of us had actually seen the movie, you were, um, how do I put this politely? Um, hesitant? Let's let's say that uh, you were you were duty bound <laughs> for your words, but uh, not exactly enthused. So I'm curious, Mr. Rowan, how did Mank play out for you? So just like to add to that context, like, yeah, I mean, it's a David Fincher film. <clears throat> I'm going to have to watch it like that's just how it is, especially if it's black and white and it's about classic Hollywood. And I love, you know, you must remember this. I love, you know, I just told a little story about Louis B. Mayer that I probably heard on You Must Remember This. Right. My favorite movie, you know, that's in black and white is King Kong. So like this era is all about me. Like I love this stuff. So it was weird to me that I didn't think Mank looked bad. It just looked like vegetables, you know, (laughs) and unlike Zodiac, which like is David Fincher giving you like, serial killer vegetables you know so like it's sure it's broccoli but you know maybe he's like done something cool with it or at least made it look interesting this one just looked real kind of flat to me it just there was nothing about it that sparked my interest 
And so I went into it with like, you know, not the highest expectations, uh, but you know, it's still Fincher and he's, he's pulled out wins on me when I never thought he could previously. So like, why didn't, why didn't I think he could do it again? Sure. And I was just, I was confused by the point of this movie. Like I didn't understand really the story it was telling or the moral it was driving at. It's not a really good biography of Mank. It's not like a titillating behind the scenes look at like the personalities that drove the creation of the movie that for the longest time was called the best film ever made. And it's not really even that scathing or insightful of a look at, you know, old school Hollywood and all of its weirdness and machinations. It's just really flat and boring and and like shallow. And there was just like no part of it that I really found particularly good (laughs) to be just like as blase about as possible. And I also just I didn't feel that Fincher quality of like his own obsessive detail or like need to tell this story you know it's this was just weirdly lacking in any of that personality or interest or intrigue i think about the fact that he has a brand right whether it's social network or the game or girl with the dragon tattoo, whether he's making something original or he's making something that's a property or whatever, he tends to work within this particular box so much so that when another director tries to do something Fincher esque, um, it generally doesn't work. You're like, well, why didn't you just, you know, get David Fincher to direct it? Um, the outliers of this Fincher esque box being, Certainly the curious case of Benjamin Button, um, which is just mm-hmm. far too glossy and honey dripped and and warm, where he is like he is a very cold director to it like and I don't use that as a derogative. Like he uses cold stories and cold visuals and cold characters in a way like few other storytellers do. And I would put into that same box as Benjamin Button, I would put Mink. There's that for, for, for me as, as far as where this kind of ranks and, and how this kind of fits into this guy's storytelling. The other thing about it that I came away from most immediately is I like you, I, I came away from this cold. I, you know, if, if I if somebody was raving up and down about Mank, I would kind of scratch my head and say, why? Because I, I this is not a movie I'm raving about. Um, but that said, I often come away from Fincher movies a little cold um you know and even the ones that i grow to love i come away from them thinking uh, you know i, I kind of feel like you went too far or i kind of feel like you didn't go far enough like he's one of those guys it's it's one it is one of the things that i find interesting about his movies is that it's he doesn't make the kind of movies that i walk away from just absolutely elated and then as I grow and mature and see other movies, I kind of can look back and I'm like, what the hell was I on about? If anything, I come away from them scratching my head about a few things. And then as time goes on, I'm like, oh, okay, now I see what was going on. Now, I don't know if that's me trying to apologize for Mank or if it's mm-hmm. me saying there's things about Mank that didn't quite burn in that as I rewatch it, as I inevitably give it another look, will burn in. But I, I too came in colder than i expected to but i wonder if that is just part and parcel with a david fincher film i i love his his coldness like that's 
that stuff is catnip for me, you know, <laughs> just like hanging out with, with him and his like lack of human generosity. <laughs> I don't even know how best to put it really. Like I love his, his, his antipathy and his, um, uh, what's the word for when you hate misanthropic misanthropic yeah yeah Yeah, he's got it i i'm here for that from fincher i kind of love that like i i like the little bit of the pessimism and and i don't come into his movies looking for human connection and i don't know if he's incapable of it but like uh it's just not something that i i expect or desire from him and and i think that what do you come into his movies looking for I, i like it's it's almost ineffable it's I like the obsessive detail. I like the, I like the clinical eye that he casts on, on humans as though they're like a, an alien species, like that kind of distance kind of rules. And, and you know, I love me a Manchester by the sea, uh, which I feel like is on the bingo card for me being on any podcast um, (laughs) that really does look at people as beautiful, complex you know, souls that each are grasping for their own piece of happiness. But then I love me some Fincher where he's just like, look at these robots driven by programming, you know, slaves to their own greed and desires. Like, let's just rock with these dark objects for a little bit. And, and I don't think that that's the kind of aesthetic or the kind of personality that is required to make this movie good or, or truly interesting or True. really impactful. I mean, the thing for me with Fincher, and again, I count myself a fan, is that once in a while, he makes a movie that's not really about what you think it's going to be about. And I think, for instance, about Zodiac, and I think about um, Social Network. You know, like when they said they were making the Facebook movie, everybody rolled their eyes and made their jokes and thought, you know, what in the world are you going to tell about technology that's six years old that that's going to make for a compelling two hour movie. And then everybody just walked away from it, losing their bloody minds. Mank, while, you know, on the surface should just be a biopic about this writer. And we will talk about a biopic about a writer later is really not about, Mankiewicz it's not about the making of Citizen Kane it's not really about the writing of it it's just a device to talk about this time in Hollywood's history and just how absolutely absurd it was like Hollywood in Hollywood by its very nature is absolutely absurd you hear people like talk down on Hollywood all the time of being like you know a world of elites that's separate off from so-called real America and whatnot but they're not wrong. You know, the, the, the entirety of the celebrity culture and the, the, you know, movie making culture is really in its own little orbit and trying to both encapsulate and sell to the average workaday person. And you got to wonder how in the world they ever have the hubris to do that. And I think that that is one of the things that's within Mank is how people who, just talk such bullshit seem to want to tap into and speak to the common person like they're one of them it's not nailed like they they certainly don't nail that that one on the head but i don't think they miss it quite as far as we might think 
I don't know. Like, because one of my main problems with this movie is how far removed all these people are from what could be considered like common human concern and sure. their own sort of lack of, of their, their, their lack of their own understanding of that remove. It's, yeah. it's, it's very strange, especially when the movie gets later on and Mank suddenly is like a, a hero for the socialist cause sort of. Right. Like he becomes this weird crusader for like, truth and and the little man but he's still you know making thousands of dollar bets on stuff and he's you know working for hollywood and he's he's you know nested in the warm and loving embrace of uh, hearst and i just don't understand what his what his 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 motivation is it's 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 so weird to watch this movie and just be like how is this happening? Like, why is this happening? Like, I, at the end of this, I still get very little of a concept of Mank as a person. Right. And so that, that, that disconnect is just like really almost at the heart of the problem is that like you, if you can't understand him, you can't understand his motivation. You sort of never understand what the heck the movie is about. I mean, it's, it's funny because the movie that he's most known for is this story about a man who proclaimed to have higher ideals and yet at the end of the day just wanted people to love him on his own terms. You know, mm-hmm. it, it wasn't really about Hearst and Hearst's power grab and the way Hearst threw his money around. It was about the way, you know, Hearst acted as a human being or this fictional version of Hearst. So in in a strange way, not telling the bio story of Mankiewicz within his own story is kind of befitting, um, you know, the movie within the movie's core. It's certainly, I mean, that's also kind of what holds its back is anytime you start talking about Citizen Kane, your knives have to be as sharp as they possibly can be because you are going to start evoking and mimicking and, you know, playing homage to something that has been dissected frame by frame by frame and generally held up as worthy. And like, to be clear as a film about that has citizen Kane as a huge part of its narrative, Mank is not worthy. Had they had any other classic Hollywood film in their center, I think they could have got away with it. I think we'd be talking about this movie very differently, but to have, that film and that narrative wrapped into all this other socialist studio system, you know, class warfare bullshit. You've got a problem. The issue, oh, the the issue, one of the, the issue. many issues <laughs> is that, you know, I don't think that it engages with, I don't think it even engages with the creation of, of Citizen Kane properly. No. Because you know? like he's, he writes this thing and then it gets handed off to Wells. And then we we don't get to see how hard Hearst fought to bury this film. You know, we don't see like the backlash that people might have felt like. And I understand that, you know, you could say like, well, once the writer hands off the script, his work is done. But he won a flipping Oscar for it. Yeah, so clearly, you know, he's still attached. Like, it's still there. Like, he could even, you know, be on. He we get him lamenting the the writing on on the wizard of oz as that's coming out like you could have him basically being like the the father who's like worried about his child 
you know, and that would almost make it, it would almost make it like the opposite of Citizen Kane, where these parents give up their son because they're dirt poor. You know, it's, it's, there were, there were other ways to do this if this is really what you wanted to do. Right. And, and it doesn't, it doesn't do that. It doesn't do any of it. And, and it's so strange that it does it that way. I mean, even his, you know, even his, his whole thing about like, I want credit for this one. He says it and Wells is mad, but he doesn't seem to try hard not to give it to him. You know, yeah. it's not even like it's a movie based around like a, a writer's guild dispute where like they're giving their, you know, and you're, you're learning about Mank's past and you're, then you get drawn into his side. We're like, of course it had to be him who wrote it because this is his experience. It's just like a dude in a bed who can't really move because his leg is broken. Just occasionally throwing out half witty Bon Maws and, <laughs> you know, getting flashbacks to when he was a dude who wasn't in a bed occasionally throwing out witty Bon Maws. Like, you don't, <laughs> you don't even understand how popular or how good he was before all this happened. You get like one scene of him writing in the studio system and it's him and a bunch of other guys kind of going into a meeting and half ass like exquisite corpse projecting together a story about a Frankenstein monster. So it, it just does such a poor job of setting him up as a character and setting up stakes. And and then it doesn't even really dive into like how much of a controversy Citizen Kane was. This feels like it's two stories that were just kind of grafted on to each other like you really could just tell the story about the socialist writer in the studio system watching the 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 moguls try to get you know a republican elected in the face of socialism or you could just tell and another movie has told the fight to get this one movie made and created one of the many weird things about mink is this whole fight to actually get the film made and to fight off Hearst's attempts to quash it and bury it and whatnot, which, which to some degree were actually quite successful is skipped over, not even in the last act, but in like the last 10 minutes, you know, we end, we get to him and Wells fighting about credit and, and Wells having this freak out in his, in his cabin, this tantrum and him saying, Oh, that's right. You know, Kane should destroy the bedroom. That's, that's a good scene. I need to add that. And then we skip forward to Oscar night. Like we, we skip from draft two of this script to the awards being handed out. And in between those two scenes, a whole lot of shit went down. I don't think this, this script for Mank is there. And I don't like one of the best things about the social network is that Fincher takes Aaron Sorkin's love of the intelligent white guy getting one over on all of the rubes and the lesser thans and the talentless hacks and turns it into a horror story. You know, Hmm. he identifies that Zuckerberg, at least, you know, in that movie's telling is like a guy with a black pit that will never be filled. And, and he's not a good person. Like I believe that Aaron Sorkin could probably have written that movie and been like, this is great. He's the next Josh or he's the next Will McAvoy. Um, 
and but it's not like but it's weird that that fincher isn't able to locate that same darkness in this script for mank like he's clearly knows that mank has some issues but like there's a point at the end where uh wells is like we had a deal yeah and he just kind of like weakly says like it's the best thing i've ever written yeah but like that, that, again that we, ar- that argument needed to be longer like that that needed to be the entire flipping movie like his entire personality is this flippant like i said he's a flippant guy who walks into a studio meeting and pitches a, like a zombie movie um and and you need to like have more of that you need to have him like just being the most condescending above it all like we need more of the kind of man who apparently sends that telegram out that says like there's millions to be made and your only competition are idiots yeah like we need to see him just like disdainful of the motion picture industry not just from like a standpoint of art but like of of everything and and to like say like why would i want my name on this piece of crap like it needs to be the sole defining aspect of his character. So when he says that to Wells, we can finally see that maybe he has some pride. The funny thing is that he, you know, or just, just before that he does, like he walks into this dinner party at Hearst castle and he crafts this narrative about an American coyote tilting at windmills and he goes on and on and he pulls no punches and people start to leave the table. And he's just like, he is just tearing into this, you know, very thinly veiled fictional character with great aplomb the way that only an actor like Gary Oldman can do. And I mean that like, if we want to talk about one of the failings of Mank, one of the failings of Mank is it never really lets Gary Oldman off the chain in a way that even Darkest Hour did, which is not exactly his greatest work. But it, it has that moment where he really just tears into Hearst in front of an entire party full of Hearst worshippers. And then he doesn't get a similar moment in the face of somebody far less imposing like Orson Welles. Well, also, Hearst in this movie is such like an outside character. Like... It just feel it feels like this is, a, this is a weird analogy that I just came up with. It should be something like um, the Departed, you know, like where Costigan gets in good with Costello, and like you know they don't exactly become friends, but like you still get an idea of how close they are and how much he trusts him. Like I don't like feel as though the movie really melds mank and hearst together that much yeah. I mean, he gets a lot of time with mary and davies but like is hearst looking at this like oh this random witty guy who i have to make my parties more fun is going off crazy or is it like oh this man who i had some level of like interest in and who i found to be clever and stuff it's like I, there's just i just have no idea what their relationship is i also don't know how much of everything that he said regarding like Hearst's own running for governor or Senate or whatever is true. Like, I, like, I don't know which parts of that were total fabrication and which parts were, were reality. And like, and the, the movie doesn't give me that context. The, like, I mean, listen, the bonkers thing is citizen Kane is already a thinly veiled shot at a public figure. This mm-hmm. is a thinly veiled shot at a thinly veiled shot. 
You know, it, it, at a certain point, when you're looking through too many screens, you cannot see what is on the other side. And I think that's one of the things that Mank had trouble with. You know, there, there's there's writing and then there's script. And the script of this has moments of being really sharp. You know, like I'm thinking of when he says, write hard, aim low. I'm like, oh, that's good. You know, write hard, aim low. Or, or when they're talking about, you know, like even stuff like when he says, if I could swim, I'd be doing swimmingly. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's pretty clever. But the actual story, the actual writing, the actual structure is so friggin' messy, um, you know, and keeps on referencing one of the sharpest written scripts in Hollywood history. It's it's yeah. so like this while this already sat on a shelf for 20 years it really needed another pass. And I don't know if David Fincher was maybe just reluctant to let that happen because his dad wrote it and his dad died. Um, I, I don't know if maybe that was it or what, but this thing needed another edit to really, you know, make it worthy of the source material that it was bringing up and make it, you know, have something really to say about that era of Hollywood or this era of Hollywood or both. I mean, the movie also does a poor job of even tying together the writing process for citizen Kane and his backstory. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's, it, it seems, it almost even, seems uninterested. Yeah. Just like, it's just weird. Cause you think on that fundamental level, they would have done a bit of a better job of that. Mank is clearly like just running down his life and calling him, you know, a fallen coyote. But it's it's just kind of it's just kind of weird that like I don't understand how Manx suddenly starts caring about Sinclair so much, and and it just it never really starts to to resonate with me, especially because like it it comes about in like the last maybe hour or like forty five minutes of the movie, and it seems spurred on purely by what happens to Shelley. The, the guy who, you know, directed the, um, the editor, the, he's the kind of fake newsreel stuff, but like, yeah. So hang on just to, just to fill people in, just in case they haven't seen this in the middle of this, in the middle of all of this writing of citizen Kane and partying at, at, uh, William Randolph's Hearst place, we've got MGM involved with this gubernatorial election. And the Sinclair who you just mentioned is Upton Sinclair a writer who is running as the liberal candidate, the democratic candidate. And at the time that was a very, very scary proposition because they were talking, not just like, you know, being a liberal, they were talking about being a socialist, which, you know, the rich people in Hollywood don't want to do. So they were backing the Republican candidate. And if you want to talk about a weird, state of affairs remind yourself that just under 100 years ago hollywood would align itself behind a right-wing candidate so there's that and in order to achieve this mgm tasks one of their big editors their big in-house editors to create a piece of propaganda that's going to run before the movies because this was back when you had things like newsreels and cartoons running before your feature and it was a commercial about why people shouldn't should or shouldn't vote for Sinclair uh, framing itself as just kind of a man on the street but ultimately coming down on the shoulders of the Republican candidate because of how it was crafted, how it was shot, how it was selected, and certainly how it, you know, how it was edited together. The editor, this, this dude named Shelley 
he jumps at the chance because he's like, well, you know, this might be my in, this might be my chance to finally get out of this editing bay and go direct a movie. And he doesn't really approach it with any kind of morality or consciousness. He's just looking for his own selfish ends to get another leg up. And I mean, you know, you can sort of understand why, even if it is somewhat of a deal with the devil, the film is made. It does the job it was intended to do. People vote for this Republican candidate in really decent numbers. And then Shelley has this, crisis of conscience uh you know at which he like reaches out to mank with like deep deep remorse and regret and you know mank is like you know he under he can hear in this guy's voice what's going on and we've got this in the middle of all this other mess so you right, can like, so suddenly you've inserted the human drama and that's just like you know I, I i in my in my podcast where we talked about this movie i, I kind of railed on it for a second because i'm like who the hell even is Shelly? We don't know Shelly from Adam. Like Shelly's coming out of nowhere. <laughs> right. Some some random dude in a newsboy hat with a mid-Atlantic accent. Like I've seen a hundred of them in this movie already, you know? Yeah. And yeah, um, he, was, why he had like, one scene. Yeah, he had one scene earlier on. And now, you know, half an hour later, we're supposed to care that Shelly is despondent because of his role in, you know, shaping the government. Right. And like, it's, I mean... <sighs> I don't like is is the loss of Sinclair really that bad? Like, is, is it really worth ending your life over? Like, I don't know. That just seems like an extra. Like, it's it's not like he helped get Hitler into power. Like, the, apparently the guy who invented the microphone was despondent over the way that it helped Hitler come to power. Um, but I don't think Shelley has got even that much of a hand in this as he as he thinks so. Maybe he does, but uh, you know, how's if, if that's part of this story, how's about giving Shelly a third scene, you know, give me something in between. He makes it and he regrets it. Right. Well, I mean, that's, uh, we just keep saying just one thought. of the problems. We keep saying like, that's one of the problems with Meg. Like that's an issue with Meg is like, again like we we just haven't invested in a lot of these characters like even mank's wife i like up until the end of the movie he like calls her poor sarah and i'm like oh this guy hates his wife like and then it's like no they actually seem to get along pretty well yeah and she says no more poor sarah and i'm like so what was the poor sarah thing really about like you know like he left everybody else calls her poor sarah. no everybody else right. calls her poor sarah because of the way mank tends to act in public and, you know, kind of always leave her holding the bag. Right. So it's just it's just really it's really weird because like I feel like even I'm confused about his relationship with his wife. I'm confused about his relationship with almost everyone in the movie. And he doesn't even know Shelley's present wife's name. And right. so I'm just like, if he's not invested in these people, then why am I? And like, you know, again, he's just always got like a clever little line. You know, Marion Davies is in there and he seems to talk with her a lot. But like, I don't really understand I don't understand what anyone's getting out of Mank as a human being and a friend. Like weirdly, as much as I railed against how poorly defined it was, his relationship with Hearst is the best in the movie because at least at some point Louis B. Mayer stands up and says, this man's paying your salary because he likes the way you talk, not the way you write. And it's like, right. Hearst is the type of incredibly rich person 
who could just want this guy because every once in a while he's like amusing. The funny thing about Mank is that it's got this future and it's got this past, but it doesn't have this middle part of Mank really licking his wounds and and really kind of seeing the the state that he's created for himself. You know, whether it's I don't know whether it's just a few like the timeline on this is muddy is very, very muddy because I mean, the election night happens in 34 and all of the events of him writing in California in 1940. So there's this space of about six years where Mank was, you know, persona non grata that we just did not visit and we're just forced to imagine. That's the poor writing and, and setup of the movie. Like it's just, there's just, a, there's a lot of, basic stuff that like the movie just doesn't grab hold of it's like you're being told a very interesting story by someone who is uninterested in the parts that you would be interested in the movie ends and there's like a you know title card and it's like you know mank never fought for credit for another movie again and it's like well because is it because he didn't think he wrote anything that was worth it is it because the 30 seconds that uh, orson wells yelled at him was so traumatic you know, like, why didn't he do it? Because it didn't even seem like he truly fought this time. He just asked for it and got it after a small tantrum. And then it said he died when he was 55, which is bananas, because he looks like he's 55 in the 30s. And then it fades out. It just says he was 55. And I'm like, are we supposed to be like, oh, this man died too young? Yeah. Because given his lifestyle, I'm almost shocked that he made it that far. Like, <laughs> you know, and again, if you had this played by like, I don't literally anyone who might have been closer to the age that he actually was, maybe yeah. that would have an impact. But Mank doesn't have a youthful verve at any point in this movie. No. He's always old, old Gary Oldman. I didn't yeah, mean he to looks like that, he, <laughs> he looks like the guy who's been drinking hard for a very long time. Yeah. You know, he doesn't look like the party boy. He looks like the guy who's who's, you know, now he's basically bleeding bourbon. Like you, you need someone who can bring about the the youthful energy of a person who believes that they are going to take on the world. Like so in, in 19, he was born in 1897, apparently. Yeah. So, so he would have 30s. been he would have been mid thirties, like you know, right? That that nowadays is not Gary Oldman. No, I mean that's that's I'm I'm thirty three. So if if the movie I think the first flashback takes place in nineteen thirty, like yeah. he would have been my age, like, and I have he, aged terribly. He like, very easily, I I kid you not, he very easily with like just like a little bit of fudging could have been played by Zac Efron. Oh yeah. Oh my God. Absolutely. It's so much easier yeah. to age someone up, especially yeah. it, that would then even play in more because Orson Wells was 24 when he made citizen Kane and he played yeah. him as an old man. Yeah. So yeah, like, exactly. Then you could have that cool little thing going on, but you really do need someone who like in this movie, it's reading as he's a jaded 50 to 60 something old man. And you need someone who at least has a little bit of the spring in their step to sell I mean, even if you just want to get super literal about it, he's not an organ grinder's monkey. A monkey 
is like energetic and spry and Gary Oldman's trying in this movie, but he is in his sixties. <laughs> not at all spry. Yeah. Like, I mean, the poster is him like standing on the table, like, you know, hollering out a toast while everybody looks on in, in horror. And I don't, be- like, yeah. I don't believe he could have got up on that table in any less than three minutes, you know, right. let alone enough to startle people. Um, that poster looks like this is going to be like, you know, a kind of weird funhouse mirror. Like here's this, this young roustabout like sailing through and just like skating the border of like propriety. But in the whole movie, he's just like, kind of like, <laughs> you know, I mean, like there's never the, like, he doesn't even <laughs> seem that fun to be around. If I'm being honest. The other weird contradiction of this movie is for a movie called Mank is the characters and the actors they put around him as the supporting players are individually fascinating. Um, I'm especially thinking of Arliss Howard as Louis B. Mayer in this movie. Mm -hmm. This guy in this movie is doing some incredible things like right down to when he's got to go in front of the entire cast of MGM and ask them all to take a pay cut and somebody hollers out, are you taking a pay cut? And I mean, you know, like if you want to talk about a scene and a moment that screams to me, 2020, that was the moment, you know, because that is like, to to me, that's the best scene in the movie. I mean, like that's without a doubt, like him doing that little walk and talk being like, you know what we do here? We make pictures and we sell them to people. And the best thing is they get like, they give us their nickel and we don't give them anything. We give them a memory, but we still own the product. Blah, 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 blah. All right. Now, uh, not breaking my stride at all. I'm going to come out here and convince an entire studio to take a 50% cut of their wages for eight weeks. And I'm going to blithely skate the fact that I'm not doing it. And then I'm going to come off the stage sounding like, you know, super earnest, you know, he has like, you know, the, the MGM doesn't stand for Metro Golden Mayor. It means my gestalt something. I can't even remember. I am I am so Catholic and Irish that I can't even <laughs> remember the. the I love that we're recording this on Hanukkah, too. So well done. <laughs> um, right. it, yeah, but like, you he's, know, he's he's great in that moment. And like, I almost wish that the movie was about him. <laughs> so do I. So do I. I mean, it, it really taps into um, 20th century personalities like John Wayne and Ronald Reagan, who, you know, put on a public persona and, you know, it was all part of the act, you know, like people like Louis B. Mayer, they had their shtick and they could spin it one way or spin it another way, but it was all part of the act. Charles, uh, Charles dance, doesn't have to do a whole lot as Hearst, except kind of look intimidating and run the table. You know, um, I think that this movie wastes a really good performance by Amanda Seyfried uh, as Marion mm-hmm. Davies. She, every time she gets some time, she does really, really well, whether it's her being the, you know, socialite, on the table of the, the media mogul or whether it's her actually having some moments of honesty in front of people like Mankiewicz. Um, she always really punches above this film's weight. Tuppence Middleton. She in this movie is, is, you know, doomed to play not even second fiddle, but like, you know, sixth or seventh chair next to Mank and, and, and do this poor Sarah act. Right. I kept expecting him to like cheat on her with Marion Davies or Rita Alexander, who was played by Lily Collins. Yeah. 
like who also just you know is is good in a role that is honestly pretty thankless because she's just the british woman who is like not charmed by mank and has to help him write this thing until eventually like the the german you know governess like explains it's something that i speak out against a lot is when a movie is like this guy's kind of a, a dick and you know people are right to be upset with him but then like from out of the shadows comes someone who's like well you know you think he's such a bad person well did you know that he did this and it's like okay yes i guess we have entirely tipped the moral scales back onto his favor and yeah. so now we can help him do that thing that we know we shouldn't help him do um but i mean like they're they're all good performances and they they seem to belong in a movie that you know deserves them and this is not that film this is not that film no i mean you know like the other thing too is between lily collins and lily james i'm really tired of watching movies where gary oldman has another british woman take notes on on his on his thoughts and pass them <laughs> on to somebody else. Like I, there, there's got to be another dynamic between Gary Old. Like I mean, listen, let's let's be happy that at least we have an older man and a younger woman, and they're not stupid. But really, well, that was my you know, thing. Can, is like I think we can raise the bar a little higher than here's this older dude and here's this younger woman, and she's gonna take his stenography. Someone just needed to say like, what's the story you're trying to tell? And then when he says. Oh, it's about, you know, Herman Mankiewicz who wrote, you know, Citizen Kane. It's like, okay, that's what it's about. That's maybe the plot, but what is the story? Like what yeah. it what What's what, what are you teaching your audience at the end of this? Because like any movie you should be able to say that. Like, you know, it's it's not just like Captain America punches the red skull. It's Captain America is this like, you know, scrawny little boy from Brooklyn. And he is the only person, you know, with the true of heart, good intentions to take down the Uber Nazi, you know, like it, it's, it's crazy that, you know, I jump to that because I'm usually like, I would say irrationally hateful of the Marvel. Films. I was about to say, I would, I could have sworn my headphones stopped working there because there's no way I just heard you say that in a positive. Well, I, I, I is love a, Captain America, the first Avenger. Like that is is a Hanukkah my, miracle. My God. <laughs> that is my crap. top Marvel film. And there's something wow. about it that is just like, there is a very affecting story here about what if the, the best guy in the room who knows what it's like to be a victim, who knows what it's like to be bullied, finally has the power to do something about it and maintains his integrity. Like that's yeah. what that movie's about. It's a power fantasy where you don't even realize until like the end that the power is just like his innate human decency. Mank has an identity crisis. There's times where Mank is trying to be a movie about the movies. There's times where Mank is trying to be a mimic of Citizen Kane. There's times where Mank is trying to be a comment on modern society and it's never commits to any one of these bits. You know, that, that that's right. Cause it, it, it's so friggin messy which is the one thing i the one word i never use about a david <laughs> fincher movie is messy like these things are usually whether you like them or not they are usually meticulously thought out and you know I'm, I'm with you i was expecting this movie to not be effective for me but to still have that sharpness that fincher has and it's it's shocking to me how messy it is 
I have said several times over the past several years that there is a certain class of filmmaker in Hollywood. And I'm not going to name names right now because there's no point, but I'm sure you can figure out who, what type of people I'm talking about who, because they have made their bones over careers that go 20 years or more are now given more and more and more freedom to do what they want to do artistically because there's less risk in terms of what needs to go to a theater and what can play on your television screen. And to that end, I say there still needs to be people like Louis B. Mayer who tell these men, always men, no. And David Fincher is a guy who does still need to be told no. Um, but we end this section of the uh, podcast with a souvenir, something tangible or intangible. If you could take away from this movie and keep, you would. Brian J. Rowan, if you could keep anything from Mank, what would be your souvenir? Uh, it would be that that draft of Citizen Kane that we see uh, so mm. I could read it and then watch Citizen Kane. And then once and for all, put to rest the question of how much Orson Welles really put into that movie. <laughs> that would be that would be something you know and that's that's a whole other thing like there are whole essays that get into who was what's idea what was whose idea and how and why and how it was right. fought and this essay is bullshit and this essay is more correct and so on and so forth that the movie doesn't have time to get into any of that right, like uh that, that be- and and bogdanovich and like all, i mean like the movie doesn't get into again what we've kind of said is like the yeah, most interesting no parts of this. Story. No, no, no time. We we spent two two hours and ten minutes arguing about socialism. No time. Um, you yeah. sort of oh, uh, uh, Lily should... Collins' husband's alive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, yeah. You remember that? You <laughs> do. <laughs> yes, really. Um, you sort of already tipped off my souvenir. It's Mayor's speech when he's doing that walk and talk through the uh, uh, MGM backlot, where he says, "This is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory." What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. That's the real magic of the movies. And don't let anybody tell you different that. I don't know if that was actually ever said by a man named mayor, or if it was just something that came out of Jack Fincher's head, but that's actually quite apt. Um, and, and that feels like a real Louis V. Mayer line points then, because you've proved that you can do it. You just have chosen not to. We rate here on the matinee cast on a scale of one, four stars. This might be no surprise to anybody. Brian J. Rowan, what do you give Mank on a scale of one, four? You know, like one and a half to two, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) It's not a colossal failure. Like it's still like competently made, but like, I just, there's nothing here for me and I don't know that there's anything here for anyone else. This is, um, this is a hard two for me. Uh, you know, this it's, it's got moments where it's handsome. It's got some good shit in it. Like it's not a complete and utter travesty on the scale of something like, you know, a, a movie that feels like an absolute philosophical and, and sensational affront, but it is just, so, fever. <laughs> no, it is just so bloody messy and so slipshod of a movie that it does not befit anyone involved. It does not befit old men it does not befit fincher it doesn't even considering the reasonable role they've been on with movies like roma and marriage story and you know even something like from this year like to five bloods it does not befit netflix as a prestige film so two for me 
uh, one and a half to two from Rowan. Hey, maybe you think that we're being way too hard on this movie and you love it. Maybe you think it's a, it is an absolute affront. Uh, let me know. Ryan at the matinee.ca, Twitter, where I'm matinee underscore CA, or facebook.com slash darkmatinee. What do you think of David Fincher's Mink? We are going to take a very quick break and uh, reload. Uh, come on back on the other side right after this. back he's buying jay rowan i'm ryan mcneil it's episode 249 we've been talking about make unfortunately um <laughs> we uh we take this time of the show the other side to go for the down spiral flip the record over uh talk about some further reading one could go on to uh after the feature presentation um mr rowan please get us out of this death spiral what is something that somebody could go on to after mank either for better or for worse I'll say that one of the things that we didn't even really have time to talk about is how much I think this movie gets wrong about or doesn't understand the writing process sure. for the movies. Um, and so <clears throat> I was trying to think of movies that like show a film writer under constraints, you know, with unreasonable demands and actually shows like a, the means by which that person, you know, attempting to maintain their integrity writes a film and i thought of okay. state and maine oh i love state and maine that movie is not mentioned near enough it it is not and I, what i love about that movie is i mean this movie they're like man you've only written like you know 80 pages and like you know it's due in three days and then he just gets blitzed and then it's like oh wow you know 200 pages that's amazing and you know he talks about being stuck in certain places but he never like talks through the problem and so i love that in state and maine he's like you know it's called the old mill like but there is no old mill in this town and they want me to take out the old mill what do i do and she's like well do, you know does it have to be change the title. Like, it's called the old mill and she's like what if it wasn't you know and then there's like you know the the whole like oh you know she's not gonna show her breasts and it's just like oh my god what do we do now and then he just you know is talking about it and he's like it's not about her breasts it's about you know, second chances, it's about innocence, you know? And so he like runs in with his like idea and, and, you know, these craven people still in those moments are like, you know, this guy's a writer. Like I cannot deny that he's come up with a thing that's going to save us. And that's just on top of all of its other biting satire about Hollywood and everything, which again, the Mank just didn't have. So like it, in that way, if Mank were trying to be a movie about that state in Maine is the better version of that movie. I, totally agree uh state in maine uh for anybody who may not have seen it uh and first of all if you have not seen it i cannot recommend this movie highly enough uh it's from 2000 it was directed and written by david mamet so right away you have a better screenwriting pedigree no offense to david fincher's dad um and then as if that's not enough of a selling point you have a cast that goes and goes and goes including william h macy sarah jessica parker alec baldwin julia styles phil seymour hoffman david pamer clark Gregg, patty lapone who i totally forgot was in this movie <laughs> ricky jay oh my and it, oh it's such and they just it's a movie about a movie being made in this small town and the challenges that it faces. And it's so simple and it's short and sweet and to the point. 
and has just so many just fantastic lines that are just tossed off as if they just came to David Mamet over lunch. Like, and, and I'm sure they probably did, you I mean, know, that's how he rolls. I mean, his, his stuff is just so great. And just the way people talk, like I, I, I could teach a course on David Mamet. I love his stuff so much. And I would yeah. relish the opportunity to get paid to just like watch and read all of his movies and his plays and his scripts and just like, just knock it out of the park the way that yeah. he, and it, you don't even, I just did it actually. The way that he writes, the way that people break their own train of thought yeah, is when you first hear it completely indecipherable until you realize that you only are thinking of it that way because you're not used to movies working in that way. Yes. I would say um, Red Belt by him in 2008 is is like amazing. It's got Chiwetel Ejiofor. It's got um, Emily Mortimer, I think. Yeah. Andrew Robinson is smiling at me right now. Yes, yes, it is. (laughs) Oh man. Yeah. State in Maine as, as a, as a film about the writing process and, and how it, how it, you know, can sometimes be a Sisyphean task is a, is a really good example. I, I highly approve. Um, I got deep into the weeds of Hearst and wanted to see another movie that has Hearst as, as a fixation and in not citizen Kane, oddly enough. Um, I went back actually around to the same point in time as state in Maine. I went back to 2001, uh, to a film by Peter Bogdanovich of all people. Uh, have you ever seen the cat's meow? I have not. Okay. So, you know, if, if you're, if you're in the, if you're already in the mess, of Mank and you're in the mood for something else that's kind of messy, uh, feel free to go to the Cat's Meow. It's on Amazon Prime right now, so it's right there on your television for free. Uh, it is about um, Hearst and Marion Davies and this yacht trip that they take one weekend um, with people like uh, Thomas H. Ince and um, Luella Parsons and Charlie Chaplin and, you know, shenanigans ensue in a way that you kind of feel like they should have ensued in mank for things to get that heated on all sides. Now in this movie, Kirsten Dunst plays Marion Davies and it gives you a, I mean, a couple things. It kind of gives you a glimmer into how good Dunst eventually is going to be. Because this is back when she's still doing like Spider-Man movies, right? Mm. And she's still kind of coming off, um, virgin suicides. She's still not quite a teen actor, but certainly not, you know, into the, into the weightier roles that we would have seen her do eventually. Um, Hearst in this movie is played by, uh, Edward Herman. People might know him as, um, the head vampire, I guess spoilers, uh, from the lost boys, or he was the patriarch (laughs) in, um, uh, the Gilmore girls. Um, and, and he is a very, very different Hearst. He's actually more of a, uh, he's the kind of Hearst that you could see why people would, would want to take him down because if anything, he's a very insecure Hearst. He's a, he's kind of a nebbishy Hearst. He's not the imposing Charles dance type Hearst. Um, he's, he's a guy who's just very, very easily gets his feelings hurt and likes, you know, wearing the funny hats at dinner and likes piloting his own boat. Um, so it's it's this weird, you know, kind of kooky take on all this from Bogdanovich being a guy who was privy to this story tangentially 
which is to say that he was a protege of of Orson Welles, um, and and just kind of has its moments. So it, it's if it, it's 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 another like make. It's another interesting mess that's not quite as messy because it's not aiming quite as high. So two things, Edward Herman, I I clicked on it and I know this man's face and I'm looking through his, his IMDb filmography. And like, I do want anyone listening to actually look this up because you will go, Oh, I know him. And then you will have an incredibly hard time remembering how. Yeah. He's also just funny. He, he's so much of a, that guy that he is on the TV series Law and Order in three different episodes <laughs> over 14 years paying three different characters. Yep. So they are clearly like, it's fine. He's aged enough and we will put him in glasses and no one will. He's just that. He is 100% that guy. Also, just want to say like Peter Bogdanovich, for being tied to Wells and like having, you know, uh, like being known as like one of the greats in that kind of way, like paper moon, the last picture show, you know, mask even, I guess, you know, it's weird that like he did a shit ton of TV movies and then did the cat's meow. And in 2014, something called she's funny that way, which if you look at the poster, it just looks like the most anonymous sort of rom-com ever. <laughs> He's, I, I mean, this is, this, this is the thing that's, that's fascinated me as time has gone on is there are a lot of talents. There's a lot of talent in Hollywood, men, always men, whose late career just turns into a, a you know, sideshow of oddities. But, uh, what else did you have as uh, further viewing after Mank? Um, so uh, on another, another, uh, side tangent in mank that might be the point of the movie is um writers in hollywood and socialism Mm -hmm. and so i chose hail caesar (laughs) oh this is not where i thought you were gonna go okay all right go on yeah i did a whole in that in that large block of time where you weren't around the matinee cast we did a whole episode on hail caesar i mean it's just it's it's like sort of the same time period i think i'm not even 100 percent sure when hail caesar takes place yeah but, you maybe know, five or involved. maybe five years later or so 10 years later yeah like shortly after the war yeah or like in the middle of the war um so like yeah just i was i was watching this movie and i was like thinking about how you have uh skank running around you know <laughs> taking care of business and just like you you get like these these kind of cartoonish images of hollywood which i think suit the satire that's also very loving a lot better mm-hmm. and again just like in terms of the the sensation of what is happening and why are these people invested in this political or socioeconomic movement you have george clooney getting kidnapped by a group <laughs> of socialist screenwriters who are talking about like the end of history and you know pushing the dialectic forward and like it's absurd but like yeah like why not like this is a conversation that was happening and it's so much more effective than newsreel footage of train jump and hobos and bill nye the science guy on a soapbox and anything that you might get out of man can find to be interesting i think you will find more readily in hail caesar a movie that when i saw it i was like oh okay that's an interesting reason to just futz around with a lot of old genres that don't really exist anymore 
But the more I think about it, the more I'm like, that actually was an interesting movie with some stuff going on. Would that it were so simple. Would that it were so simple. <laughs> this movie, I, I adore Hail Caesar. Like, you know, Joel and Ethan Cohen have had an incredible career. And there are times where they are clearly out to make something sharp, make something important and make something that's going to leave a lasting mark on the cinematic landscape. And there are other times where they are just really out to make themselves laugh. And this is clearly in the second camp. Um, This movie, this is a movie that knows exactly what it wants to get out there and do. Like if there is an anti mank, it is hail Caesar. You know, this movie wants to, you know, show just how much of a circus the studio was, how many plates were spinning at any one time, how much grooming had to take place on some of these people who we look at now as legends and, you know, just how absurd it all truly was. And they make it look so handsome. They've got everybody looking like they're actually having a whole lot of fun. Um, you know, and, and yeah, would that it were so simple? Um, uh, yeah, this is a great call. Well, um, you know, since we're on this trend of movies about movies, I went back to a movie from uh, five years ago now. Um, we're, we're talking about a lot of modern movies on this episode, and that's not necessarily such a bad thing. Um, I went to another one that at the time I felt was, I don't want to say messy, but I think just kind of shallow. And now in the light of Mank, I actually think I owe it a little bit of an apology. Uh, when's in the, the, last in the where, harsh light of Mank. <laughs> <laughs> when's the last time you thought about uh, Jay Roach's movie Trumbo? You know what's funny? Actually, like a couple days ago when I was talking about Mank on my podcast, I didn't bring it up. Right. But I, um, I thought about it because I was like, what are movies about like, beleaguered screenwriters and how do they how do they like pick how, how the writing process i say this as a writer is super boring yeah. it's like to watch like to be in the mind of a person writing is awesome so like often in movies or tv shows like they got to do something to kind of like make the writing process seem interesting one of yeah. the things i love about this movie called starting off in the evening is that okay. um frank langella is just a super boring writer guy He's just like, yeah, I just sit down and I write like I, I, I it's, it's a discipline. I have to do it. And I just I sit down at the typewriter and I just start writing. And like <laughs> then I thought about like Trumbo, where like the key art image of it is like Brian Cranston sitting in a bathtub with a typewriter. Yep. And it's just like, OK, yep. that's how they decided to go for that. <laughs> Yeah, um, you know, Trumbo about the actual author, Dalton Trumbo. Um, he, you know, you've got the you've got the connection of socialism because Trumbo was a socialist. He went to jail and got blacklisted because of his political beliefs, um, you know, but but it's another movie about the movies. It's another movie about a writer of movies. Uh, there's a lot of people in this film who were real life people um, such as Edward G. Robinson and uh, Kirk Douglas and Otto Preminger and even Louis B. Mayer comes back up in this movie. Um, But okay. It's not a bad movie. I I wouldn't go so far as to say that this movie is bad. If I only had two channels on my television that worked and one was playing Trumbo and one was playing Mank, I would just leave it on Trumbo and take my medicine. 
by you know every day of the week and twice on Sunday. But Trumbo is something that like Jay Roach has kind of started down this path of telling true to life stories and loading it up chock a block with actors that do pastiche. You know, he took this he took this game of Trumbo and he went pro with it a few years later when he did Bombshell and he had, you know, actors playing Megan Kelly and, you know, Roger Ailes and so on and so on and so on. So that I think is one of the weird things that comes up when Hollywood is playing Hollywood is you get this really pass fail situation with act with people playing people, you know, and for every one performance where somebody just kind of disappears, like, um, you know, Phil Seymour Hoffman as Truman Capote, you get somebody who's like so drastically doing somebody else that it just becomes hard to take them seriously. And I think about Christian Burkle in this movie or Burkell playing Otto Preminger in just such an over the top and cartoony way that it becomes completely impossible to ever take him seriously. Brian Cranston does his Brian Cranston thing. You know, like right. it, it's almost impossible for him to turn in a bad performance at this stage in his career, but everybody else around him just seems to be on another frequency. But as a movie about the writing and as a movie about politics in Hollywood, I would rather take this dose again than go back to Mick. Yeah. Jay Roach like directed recount. And then like, aside from like two other things has kind of just been like, if it's a true story, I will write about it. If it's vaguely even tangentially related to politics, I'll direct the shit out of it. Like this yeah. is just what my life is going to be now. I did yeah. dinner for schmucks and the campaign and no one liked them. So this is it for me. I will give you a movie called uh, game change. You know, I'll do that for HBO about Palin. Yeah. yeah, I'll do a recount. I'll do a, what was the other one? All the way. He did the, Linden, he did the Linden Dark movie yeah. with Brian Cranston again. Yeah. Yeah. This and is, then, this uh, is his thing now. He gets, he, he tells stories about real people with other people who kind of look like those people. Yeah. Yep. And um, I mean, like, you know, he's, he's clearly making money off of it. I don't know if the projects are making money, but he keeps getting hired. So that's all that's that he sure. probably cares about. Coming away from something like Mank and seeing these kinds of movies get made. I mean, Hollywood is never not going to let itself be the focus of the story. That has been the case for a very, very long time. Like some of the earliest movies were about movies getting made. And I mean, even they, King Kong, which I brought up earlier, you know, Carl Denham is like, you know, you're never going to find another actress to be in one of your crazy adventure pictures, Carl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, the funny thing is, like, for every one Sunset Boulevard or for every one Singing in the Rain, there are a million Manx or um, Trumbos or, you know, on and on and on and on and on of movies about movies that are just kind of... That is episode 249 of the Matinee Cast. I am so thankful for Brian J. Rowan for coming by. Come on back on Thursday, December 31st for the year-end show. It also happens to be episode 250 of this show. So, hey, we made it. Um, We will be wrapping up the year in film for 2020 in a slightly different manner than we normally do because... 2020 um brian j rowan is of course uh on the film stage podcast which you can listen to weekly i want to say weekly it is in fact weekly we have managed to keep that up in spite of our fraying psyches 
You guys are troopers, man. Um, uh, what you, do you guys can hear us slowly losing our minds. Like <laughs> as, as the pandemic has dragged on, we have become more and more like loopy and punchy and off the goddamn mark. Like just have like, you, incredible tangents. You should you should totally cobble together a this was 2020 show to you know like of, of some of like the greatest hits really i'm fully in favor of this what are you guys talking about on your next show um so the one that's probably dropping monday or tuesday actually is a uh, sound of metal oh nice um and which is a much so better we'll movie be than Mank, a... so please don't listen to that after you're done yes. after you're done, uh, my, you my previous podcast was on mank uh don't you know you've already heard my thoughts and i'm the most important one so but yeah, we're doing Sound of Metal and uh, our guest uh, star. No, our, our guest for that episode uh, is going to be Roxana Haddadi, who I went to college with and who is a fantastic film writer and thinker. So uh, you're definitely going to want to check out that. My site is thematinee.ca for more audio content. You can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them in all the usual spaces, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, Apple's podcasting spaces, Blueberry, uh, Google, um, any you know anywhere really. If, you, if my show is not where you listen to podcasts, let me know. I'll put it there. I'll give you handy ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. Feedback on Mank can be left in the comments section of the site. You can email me, ryan at thematinee.ca. Twitter, I'm matinee underscore ca and uh facebook is still there facebook.com slash dark matinee mr rowan any final thoughts no uh thank you for having me um have me bank soon and i uh i don't know uh i was a lot better at making mank puns earlier this week before i completely lost my mind well thank you very much for brian <laughs> see how easy it is i'm ryan we'll see you at the matinee